0: Engaging Leader, Episode 216 The Business of We Closing the Gap Between Us Versus Them. Featuring Laura Kriska. Brought to you by the team at Workforce Communication. Find out more at workforcecommunication.com. your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Us versus them gaps have always affected the American workplace. Sales versus marketing, manufacturing versus engineering, human resources versus legal. But today, there is an urgent need to address a wide range of culture gaps, especially due to the impact of the pandemic, racism and protests in support of Black Lives Matter, and an intensely divisive U.S. presidential election. No matter what your politics, one thing is clear. The old tools just don't work. A new approach to diversity, cultural difference, and inclusion is urgently needed. What can business leaders do to create true synergy among the diverse and often fiercely divided members of their workforce? In this interview today with Laura Kriska, author of the new book, The Business of We, we'll discuss a practical roadmap for building cohesive, high performing teams regardless of personal differences. Laura Kriska is an internationally recognized expert and leading consultant on cross-cultural relations with more than 30 years of experience bridging gaps in diverse workplaces. She's worked with Fortune 500 companies on four continents, helping thousands of business leaders and professionals build trust across us-versus-them differences based on nationality, ethnicity, race, religion, age, or any factor of identity. Her newest book is The Business of We, the proven three step process for closing the gap between us and them in your workplace. Laura Kriska, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. Laura, tell us about your experience as the first American woman to work in Honda Motor Company's Tokyo headquarters.
1: Yes, it was a rare experience early in my career and i was very eager to go to japan i had been born in japan i lived there as an exchange student so getting a job my first job to work in the tokyo headquarters was so exciting however when i actually got there you know there were a lot of rules to follow both visible rules and invi- and invisible rules and that was hard for me i wasn't as prepared as i could have been.
0: So even with your prior experiences in Japan, there were some things that surprised you?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was under the illusion that one year as an exchange student would fully prepare me for all of the experiences that I would encounter in Japan. And the reality is, all of us go through culture gaps all the time, so for example, Uh, I have an 18 year old son and he's about to go off to college and there's a culture difference, you know, living at home with your parents doing stuff for you and then going on out on your own. It sounds amazing and it will be amazing, but there's going to be some shock for him. And and then when he goes off into the workplace. So I think for me when I was 22, I was going through a kind of double culture shock, the culture shock of America to Japan and the culture shock of student to grown-up.
0: So can you give us an example of something that would have happened?
1: Well, the first day, uh, I showed up at the Tokyo headquarters, and I was dressed for success. I mean, <laughs> like, I, you know, I I had just started earning money, and I bought this beautiful suit. I still remember it so clearly. It was a Liz Claiborne,
0: cream-colored
1: tunic, uh, top and skirt. And I had this matching briefcase and it, the briefcase is totally empty, of course, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing. but you know, I'm looking the part, I'm trying everything I can do to, to really look like a professional, even though I'm 22 and I show up at the headquarters and before lunch, they have given me two blue polyester uniforms only mm. for women. And these uniforms were, like, think Girl Scout, like, Mm -hmm.
0: think
1: not attractive. And I was, you know, standing there in my beautiful suit and just, like, having this crisis. Like, what do I do? And I, you know, hung up Liz Claiborne in my closet and said goodbye because I was the visitor. And as the visitor, I felt some responsibility to Follow the rules. Of course I would speak Japanese. Of course I would take my shoes off before I went into someone's home. You know, these were things I had become familiar with. But I didn't really understand all the rules. You know, wearing a women's only uniform at that time felt very old fashioned. So that was first day.
0: Yeah, that would be a shock. Um, these cultural differences aren't only present when someone travels to another country or works in another country, or even when your son goes off to college for the first time. They, we run into them every day in the work that we do. Do you have any uh, everyday examples in the workplace?
1: Sure. Uh, one of the things I love to do when I'm talking to people in workshops is asking for their examples of culture difference because everybody's experienced it. Sometimes they give very um, obvious examples for, you know, like going overseas to do work somewhere, but there are occupational differences. Um, For example, uh, when people get to work or start working, Um, I work with very time sensitive people and then people who are much looser about time. And that attitude toward time is a simple example of the type of culture gaps that, Uh, Happen all the, you know, every day in the workplace.
0: Yeah. So, so some people, it's very important to be on time or early to everything. Mm -hmm. And for others, it's just not that big of a priority. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been to some, some uh, countries overseas where they just don't think of time. It's just not the same priority completely. It's just not important.
1: And it's not a right or wrong thing. It's kind of like what, what is the agreement? And, When I I believe in the idea of cultural tendencies, which are different from stereotypes, stereotype is assuming that everyone from one particular group, you know, follows this particular norm of behavior and tendencies are a kind of uh, characteristic that, you know, a lot of people follow. So there is a characteristic or a, a tendency, for example, in Japan, for people to be very time oriented, like they measure time in seconds or minutes when, where compared to like Brazil, um, there's a lot looser attitude. And so if you go into it thinking that I'm right, my way is right. Of course it feels right. Because if you've grown up that way, you get all kinds of indicators that that's the right way to behave. But if you've grown up in the other culture, the indicators are, you know, to be flexible is the right way to be.
0: It seems like it, it would also apply, I'm just thinking today, there's so much tension in the world and divisiveness and polarities. And it seems like there's really uh, some cultural differences in terms of political views, in terms of just how you approach uh, what you think about certain um, Big things in the world whether it's something that creates anxiety for you or not and it seems like there's also tendencies sort of a dominant uh tendency in in groups about hey when this topic comes up let's just say the pandemic when this topic comes up this is how we think and talk about it and um it seems like there can be some div- divisiveness there as well um how do you how uh, does oh. that go ahead
1: i mean i'm curious to know what do you mean like when they say the pandemic give me an example.
0: Yeah. Let's see. So I was, I guess this popped into my head. I've had a few conversations at in the workplace recently, but just yesterday got together with a friend over the weekend for coffee and, um, we started talking, sharing just, Hey, how's life going? Mm-hmm. And the topic of the pandemic came up and my head was in the fact that we're meeting for coffee, but we can't actually sit in, it, where we are. It's everything's closed. And so we took our coffees and we went out in the snow and walked through the slush of the streets for an hour and a half, sipping our coffee instead of the traditional experience of sitting inside where it's warm and kind of giving each other that kind of attention. So my head went into, doesn't this uh, isolation, this sort of mandatory isolation, isn't this, um, it gets in the way of human connection. Mm-hmm. And... So I was sort of feeling like protesting, like, you yeah, know, I don't like people telling me what to do and I gotta follow these rules. And his head, however, just the starting point was, um, he was anxious for his family. He was anxious for the people in his life. Um, he actually was more like, you know, did you notice that this uh, this thing happened and that wasn't a- actually a safe um, scenario there? They they weren't taking appropriate precautions. and. Mm-hmm. The, I guess similarly, you know, um, because we know each other so long, we had easy respect. It was easy to respect each other and just have emp- instant empathy for each other. But that's mm-hmm. not always as easy when it's someone you don't know and you start talking from a certain perspective and mm-hmm. their head is just completely somewhere else, at least for yeah. a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so tricky right now, and the, the cultural norms are all over the place. In the book, I, and I think it's the very first pages of the book, I have these um, like 10 rules that people have to kind of get on board with if you're going to engage in the work of bridging gaps. And one of them has to be um, that you genuinely want to bridge a gap. And I don't think there's a lot of hope if people are not genuine about wanting to bridge a gap. And this I'm bringing this up because it relates to the political polarization that's going on. It's, I don't have great answers for that. I, I have answers for, where I have experience, I guess I should say, when it comes to people being different with their identities. I'd say uh, it's very tricky to manage these differences, but it's so manageable because these perceived notions that when someone looks different than me, or they practice a different religion they speak a different first language, this notion that, oh, well, then it's so hard to get to know this person or or, there's no way that we have any common commonalities or could have common shared factors. That's what I found is so wrong and is so easily bridged when people do the work to engage and to learn about other cultures. I mean, I've spent my career nudging people, encouraging them, inspiring them to just pause and look below the surface of what you can see about a person or a group and understand it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But if you understand it, almost all, I mean, I can think of all kinds of situations in my own life where when I paid attention, And looked, I discovered, oh, we have a lot in common. Um, You know, religion is a a great example of that. If you grow up in one religion and you see others, you know, Christianity versus Muslim, for example, um, there's a lot of shared values in these religions if you are looking at factual, you know, descriptions, and especially if you actually talk to someone who practices that other religion. And You realize that some of the notions that we carry around that have been amplified are not accurate. They may be characterized a very small group, but that the majority of the people who practice this other religion actually share a lot uh, with people who practice the religion that you may be familiar
0: with. Yeah, this is all part of why I, the, your title, your book title just caught my attention as being so important today. The business of we, closing the gap between us and them. And you use this phrase, we building. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Mm-hmm. So we building is a whole lot like basic cooperation. We, we all know cooperation is good, but it's more than that. We building is cooperating across differences. So the the difference could be language, race, gender, gender identity, age, you know, whatever it is. And I use that phrase because I want it to mean just that. I want it to mean that we see difference, that we um, respect difference, and we work to build connection. So a perfect example of this would be um, you're working with people whose native language is not the same native language as yours. So instead of uh, expecting all of those people to learn your language 100%, which, you know, if they're the visitor, um, yeah, they should make an effort. But how about me, the person who's on what I call the home team, right? I associate with the majority here. How about I learn just one word, one phrase, how about I make an effort to pronounce their name accurately? That is what a we builder does. So it, it's, a, it's different than expecting others to assimilate to what I consider the cultural norm or the majority culture. It is acknowledging that there is a majority culture and that if I'm identifying with that majority culture, I too have some responsibility, which is to use the home team advantage that I have to make those people feel welcome. And I've seen this work. You know, one word, saying good morning in that person's language can be game-changing.
0: Yeah, it it, 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 it it demonstrates some humility and some curiosity and some vulnerability. Like when I have tried out using a word, I always feel um it's scary. Sometimes I get it wrong. I, I can remember, I can remember once visiting Honduras. And I think I said something like, um, I'm going to get it wrong right now, Uh, someone was speaking to me in Spanish, and I knew, you know, eight Spanish terms, and so at some point I said something like, um, no comprendo, and I was corrected, no, I think, no comprende, and I, you know, felt kind of sheepish there. (laughs) But it does, um, it did help to just sort of bridge a gap there.
1: I'm shocked. How few people actually make those efforts? Yes, I mean, I think you're right. It it, it does involve vulnerability, especially in the workplace, especially when people have authority. I think they they are discouraged from showing any type of vulnerability, and this is a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any? Other, that's a great example of really a simple gesture of a we building behavior. Um, any other simple ones like that that come to mind?
1: Another very simple one that I see all the time, this is, of course, in non-pandemic times, is when you have lunch and where you're eating and with whom. I think lunch is one of the most underutilized opportunities for we-building because, uh, you know, the kind of that social, more relaxed time is a great opportunity to build your relationship with other people. We all know this. You know, this is classic um, in any business environment. But if you look in the lunchroom of any organization, what you see is similar people sitting together eating lunch. And and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that unless it happens all the time. So I I often reflect back on my experience working with thousands and thousands of Japanese um, patriots outside of Japan because they are, um, they're kind of a window for me to help see other groups. But I noticed that these you know, talented, hardworking, uh, mostly men would leave Japan. They'd be on assignment for you know, four or five years in uh, Miami or London or Dusseldorf. And at lunchtime, they would go off with other Japanese people and speak Japanese, sometimes eating only Japanese food. So they were living outside of Japan, but living a very Japanese life. And they were missing opportunities to build relationships with local people. And that same thing happens with people here in the United States, especially when those people identify with the cultural majority. And in, a business, in the business world, the cultural majority is middle-aged white people like us. <laughs> there are a lot of us. Did you notice that, so <laughs> many of us? And so the people in charge of diversity and inclusion, decision-making, uh, new policies, which are so important, some of those people, not all, but some of those people have never had lunch with people that are different by, you know, that deliberately, like they thought, you know, I, I should try to expand my circle and, and reflect on who do I have lunch with? Because basically everybody eats lunch, right? Not everybody wants to go out after work for meals or drinks, but almost everybody eats lunch. And -hmm. and so I've seen companies uh, embrace this idea of we building opportunity and actually host we building lunches. So the company will buy pizza or, you know, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but the when the company puts that kind of effort in, so let's say they they buy pizza for uh, they spend forty dollars on pizza for a group of people, and then they they set it up to to make sure everybody's encouraged to you know don't sit with somebody who you all already know. This is a we building activity. Um, the results are kind of priceless in terms of communication, relationship building, trust, but they're hard to measure, right? The 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 positive outcomes of rebuilding are easy to measure when you're looking at the negatives, right? Fewer complaints, maybe less time and money spent on consulting lawyers because of problems. And what you get are better relationships, um, better communication, better teamwork. But again, these are hard to measure. And I think this is one reason these items get overlooked,
0: it just hits me that, I mean, it, it may be hard to measure the direct result from some specific activity, but over time and a little more broader level, you can measure things like trust and engagement and see a change over time, I would imagine.
1: And, and this is why in my book, um, I use this three-step process, you know, fostering awareness is the first step, which we're kind of talking about, you know, how you get aware of different cultures and One of the ways is asking people for examples of when they've traveled and then, you know, bringing it back to examples of being in different um, places in the United States. And so people can easily see these cultural norms when you introduce it that way. But the second step is a a self-evaluation. I call it the us versus them um, uh, assessment. And it's 10 simple questions. And they're yes or no questions. But they are created to give a person a measurement, a number that is an indicator of your level of engagement with another cultural group. And I developed this by working with Japanese staff, those same uh, middle-aged Japanese men who are hardworking and, you know, really devoted to succeeding, because they were living this Japanese life, it occurred to me to put that into some kind of data that they could much like if you wanted to lose weight, the first thing you do is step on a scale to see, you know, wh- what is my weight? And I'll also point out, just like with measuring your health, you know, your weight is just one measurement. There are all other kinds of measurements, blood pressure, etc. So just like with, you know, the us versus them assessment is not the only way to measure, but it is a measuring tool that, not seen before, and I feel like it could be really helpful to people in the workplace and beyond.
0: All right, engagers, we are out of time for this episode, but we've really only scratched the surface of the material in Laura's book. So don't miss part two of this conversation. We'll talk more about some specific tips for closing the gap and building a we culture, especially some tips for building we building especially some tips for WeBuilding while working from home, like during this pandemic, while leading a remote team, and applying the WeBuilding tools in daily life beyond the workplace. This is a production of Workforce Communication. We are a team of consultants and creatives using the power of communication to help organizations enhance the well-being and performance of their people. My colleagues and I partner with mid-sized and large employers to attract top talent, fully engage employees, and achieve superior business results. In several areas, including employer branding, talent management, wellness, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at workforcecommunication.com. Our thanks to Betsy Leahy, our production assistant, Jamie Barnes, Tom Hitchcock, and Jenny Colenda from our social media team, J.J. Leahy from our video and graphic design team, and Rick Tarrant, our announcer. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real Movers and Shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.